Hello and welcome all. My name is Marissa and you are listening to the Shining Armor Podcast, the show hosted by a comic book newbie who likes Marvel comics and just wants to talk about Iron Man. Well, we've made it to episode six and I am just as surprised as you are. If you happen to be listening, that is. This episode, we are doing yet another single issue deep dive, our third in a row, but for good reason as we are going to be introduced to yet another one of Iron Man's recurring villains. So we're going to spend just a little bit of time getting to know them and looking at their first appearance. So go ahead and grab your favorite cozy beverage. Hot green tea with honey is one of my favorites, though I also love a good cup of coffee with non-dairy creamer and lots of sugar. And listen on in or read along if you're able. And if you want to, assuming you're not driving or anything, I can't be held responsible for what happens if you're trying to read and drive, so do us both a favor and just don't, okay? As a reminder, if you do wish to read along, you can find all of the stories we are looking at on Marvel Unlimited if you are a subscriber there. But I'm reading from Iron Man Epic Collection Volume 1, if by some unlikely stroke of coincidence you happen to have that. Either way works just fine. With that out of the way... Let's get into today's story in Tales of Suspense number 47, Iron Man Battles the Melter. Part 1, Meeting the Melter. Manufacturing Misfortune. TOS number 47 was published on August 8, 1963, and cover dated November 1963. Credits here include written by Stan Lee, pencils by Steve Ditko, inks by Don Heck, and lettering by Sam Rosen. Our opening splash page depicts our golden hero at the mercy of the eponymous Melter, as his suit, well, melts away before his very eyes, as a question is posed to the reader. How can a man of iron save himself from a supervillain with the power to melt iron? It's even written in a literal drawn question mark. Cheeky, Stan. Real cheeky. Note that I am assuming that this was Stan's idea, as it has the hallmark of his cheesy sensibilities from this time period written all over it. Case in point, another text box even calls this story... Another great classic to be from the Marvel Age of Comics. Not hardly, unfortunately. Of course, if you, dear listener, happen to know better, please feel free to let me know how wrong I am. After all, if you're not learning, you're not living. Our story begins proper on page two, the first panel of which depicts a couple of tanks inexplicably malfunctioning. A suited official states that The points of stress of both tanks have been weakened to the breaking point, while another states that each joint looks as though it has been melted. As this news breaks, the designer of these tanks is made aware and has no choice but to get involved and figure out what in actual blazes is even happening. As you may have guessed, based solely on which book we're reading, the designer is none other than our boy Anthony Stark, who states to himself incredulously, that there is no way the tanks or the materials used to build them could be defective. After all, he pays top dollar for only the highest quality. 
However, during his own personal inspection, out of nowhere, Tony is suddenly clocked on the back of the head by today's villain, the Melter, who, as you may have guessed, is also responsible for our melting tank problem. The Melter decides to take this time to also take care of the new shipment of building materials that has just come in, which accomplishes two things. It slows down production, and it screws with Stark. Which was apparently all according to the plan and whims of our baddie, who also takes the time to pontificate his success as he unmasks, revealing himself to be... No one we've met before. Huh. Now that's interesting. How to create your own villain. Turns out, this is Bruno Horgan, a former competitor of Stark's. However, as we will soon learn very quickly, Stark has no competitors. At least, not for long. As he tends to run circles around everyone else so badly that the competition pretty much ends up fighting amongst themselves, thinking they remotely stand a chance of catching up, or else completely self-imploding in spectacular fashion. This seems to be what has occurred with Mr. Horgan here, who was outed in a manufacturing scandal involving inferior materials, and as a punishment, had an important contract revoked and handed over to Stark Industries instead. So, Mr. Horgan does what every sane and reasonably minded business mogul does when they get bested by Stark. He decides to become a supervillain. You know, as you do. Using an inspection beam he created that he accidentally discovered is overpowered enough to have the ability to melt metal, Mr. Horgan builds an exosuit with the beam built into it, fashions a costume to hide his identity, and vows to strike fear into the hearts of men. Page 4, panel 1. He also boldly states, The world will soon come to know me as the Melter. <laughs> Okay, Bruno. As you may have guessed, following the Shepenka incident from TOS number 45, discussed in episode 4 of this very podcast, and now here with Mr. Horgan, this will become a running theme in this book. Angry, disgruntled former employees or competitors deciding that the best way to do what they're hate on for Tony Stark is to become a supervillain. Turns out, the Marvel Cinematic Universe is a lot closer to the role it's inspired by than we give it credit particularly in this regard. After finishing off destroying all those tank components, and after taking the time to tell the audience his entire origin story, the Melter exits stage left for now, but vows that he is not finished with our boy, as he leaves Tony knocked out cold on the ground. More 60s workplace shenanigans! Meanwhile, Happy and Pepper are wondering just where in the world the boss got off to. And Pepper asks Happy to go and find him so he can sign off on some urgent reports. Though she actually asks him quite cordially, Happy for some reason gets super defensive and spouts back, Look, doll, I'm his ever-loving chauffeur, not a bloodhound. But if you can bear to have me take my lovable self away for a minute, I guess I can do it. Page 4, panel 3. <laughs> wow. Okay, what gives, Happy? That wasn't called for. 
The very next panel even has him doing some mind game with himself. Some bizarre mental gymnastics. Talking about some, I know she's nuts about me. If only she knew it. Where there has been, so far, absolutely no mention from Pepper or anyone else in any context of any such thing. What gives, Happy? (laughs) This is a big old nope for me. And one of the things about these 60s comics, that makes no sense at all. I mean, if she were into you, dude, she'd say so. Trust me. Putting words into someone's mouth with no context, especially to a woman in a male-dominated workplace, is just skeevy and wrong. Let's chalk this one up to the yikes moment that it is. There's plenty more of those to come. And just move on quickly. In almost the same breath that Happy spouts that ludicrous delusion, Panel 4 has him mercifully cut off from this train of thought as he finds Tony sprawled out on the floor, having just now recovered from being clocked by the milker, and apparently having been unconscious long enough that his chest plate has begun to run dangerously low on power. Again, told y'all, this isn't going to keep happening. He asks Happy to help him to his office, then orders both Happy and Pepper, to leave him alone there and not call a doctor under any circumstances after Pepper shows concern that he looks ill and instinctively knows that something's wrong. The fact that he explicitly instructs her not to call a doctor when she says she should just makes her even more suspicious. Remember, at this point, no one is aware of Tony's heart condition, and he plans to keep it that way for as long as possible. Obviously, we the readers know what's up, but that's beside the point. First confrontation with the Melter. Page 5, and Tony is plugging in and regaining his strength, musing about how difficult it will be to explain this process to Happy and Pepper, and being concerned about his secret being discovered if he were to ever be properly examined by a doctor. To most first-time readers, this might sound absolutely ridiculous, and a little like standard 60s macho white guy crap. But to me and others who've read this before, yeah, to be perfectly honest, it still sounds like that. But also, with prior knowledge, and at the risk of sounding like I'm trying to justify him or anything, and also at the risk of spoiling a few things, does start to sound a little bit like foreshadowing. Hmm? Rereading this again, It kind of makes the literary part of my brain tingle, and that's exciting. So, keep this point in the back of your mind for now, dear listener. While all this was going on, the Melter had found his way into another part of the factory, and he's ready to do some more damage. However, this time, an alarm is tripped, and Tony is made aware that there is an intruder in the plant. And since he's already in his office, he suits up his Iron Man and takes off towards the trouble. And not a moment sooner, as the melter has already begun destroying vital pieces of machinery with his melting ray and shaking up the employees in the area who are stunned and bewildered, but they can't do anything except run for help and hope that it comes. Luckily for them, help finally does arrive in the form of Iron Man. Drop that, mister, or you'll wish you had! Iron Man shouts, panel 2 of page 6, as he confronts the Melter, who seems surprised to see him, despite prior knowledge that he 
had heard that Iron Man worked for Stark. Well, here's another reference to Iron Man and Stark being connected, with the further implication being that he's not just affiliated with Stark or familiar with him, but now actually actively on his payroll. Does this make Iron Man the first corporate-related superhero? I can't say for sure, having so little knowledge of the subject, but he certainly is in the Marvel Universe at this point. Iron Man's arrival prompts the Milter to turn his melting beam away from the machine he was damaging and towards Iron Man instead. Panel 7 shows just how effective his weapon is against our unfortunately metal-clad hero. The entire left arm of the armor has melted away, gloves, joints, and all, leaving his bare arm exposed. Under the armor, Tony panics, realizing that if the Milter is able to melt away any more of his armor, such as his helmet, he could expose his identity, which, as we've been discussing so far at this point, is presumably a bad thing for some reason. Or even worse, his chest plate could be destroyed, which actually is a bad thing, because that would kill him. So he decides the best course of action is to get out of range of the Melter's assault, and he takes to the skies in a tactical retreat. The Melter, of course, gives chase and manages to keep up with him, relentless in his pursuit. After a few tricks involving his magnetic transistors, Iron Man manages to shake his pursuer for the time being. He returns to his office, turns back into Tony Stark, and heads back down to the factory floor where the Melter just was to inspect the damage. Apparently, the smoking heap of melted slag before him is perfectly repairable, and he orders his men to fix the damaged machinery, working around the clock in shifts with triple pay, and make it snappy. Alright man, whatever you say. Now at least he's prepared to compensate his people for the extra work they have to do. So there's that, I guess. Apparently, this business with the melter did its job effectively, and production has slowed down enough that its effects are felt at the highest level. Even Tony is behind on his own commitments, such as approving new designs and just generally doing his job. And to top it all off, he's got the jerks from Washington on his back again. So, he does what he normally does in these situations and locks himself in his workshop after prompting Pepper to cancel all his appointments. He nearly loses himself in his frustrated musings about how the Melter is too powerful and that he's afraid to risk fighting him again in the off chance his identity is revealed. Then he snaps his head back into gear and figures that, with his mental prowess, there has to be something he can come up with to defeat him. More trouble from Capitol Hill! Tony's apparently at this all night, because the next morning, he goes back to the front office to find Happy and Pepper still there, and Pepper still taking calls. It appears they never left the office either, and stayed there all night in case something came up. Good old reliable team that they are. It's so nice that Tony finally has someone in his corner for a change. A lack of support is something he often struggles with in his book, so it's very good that he has it for now. It's not all good news, however, as Pepper informs Tony that he's being summoned to a special congressional committee and he's expected in Washington, D.C. ASAP. Oh dear. Tony was worried this might come up. So he decides to leave at once and also decides he doesn't want Happy to drive him, much to Happy's dismay. Poor Happy doesn't seem to get to do his job very often, does he? This time, 
Pepper snaps back at him about how he crumples an average of one finger a week. Normally, I'd say that was unprompted and a cruel jab on her part, and how in the world would she know? However, just for Happy's weirdly possessive mental gymnastics earlier, yeah, let's go ahead and call this one Pepper's Payback. Just this once. The messed up thing about it all is, though, is the reason Tony doesn't enlist the service he literally paid Happy to do is because he wants to fly there himself as Iron Man, presumably to save time and get there quickly. But what doesn't come up is how it would look even more suspicious that he managed to get from New York to D.C. so quickly. This never comes up. Not once. And this will keep happening. How does no one ever pick up on this? It's so bizarre. In any case, after a quick change of clothes and travel arrangements, courtesy of a location he owns nearby, because of course he does, being rich and all, he arrives at Capitol Hill and meets with the Congressional Committee, who, led by the still unnamed Senator Harrington Byrd from the last issue, pretty much reams him out for the recent incidents. They don't even buy his story about the Milter. That's right. He actually told them the actual honest truth of who's behind the incidents, and they don't believe him. What is it with politicians and the truth, huh? Tony vows to bring back proof of the Melter's existence and involvement, and despite the fact that these stuffed shirts are clearly fed up with him and determined to feed him to the wolves, they do agree to give him that chance. Just then, a bespectacled admin assistant arrives to inform the committee that a call just came in from SI and that it's an emergency. Senator Byrd threatens Tony that it better be something he can fix for his own sake, and Tony says he will leave at once. How to defeat the Melter? Sure enough, as soon as he returns to his Long Island factory, top of page 12, it becomes all too clear that the Melter has struck again. A floor worker informs Tony that it'll take a week just to remove the debris, during which time production will be at a standstill. Obviously, this is no good, and Tony, presumably stealing his resolve, removes himself from the scene to go and contact Iron Man. In other words, to go and change into Iron Man. I love how he calls this worker by name. Chuck. I love the implication that Tony knows the names of all his employees. That warms my heart and it convinces me even more that he really is a good guy, no matter what people say about him or choose to believe. Chuck, however, doesn't share Tony's optimism in thinking that Iron Man is going to be of any help against the Melter. Far as I can see, Iron Man has had it, Chuck thinks to himself as Tony leaves the scene. Well, low confidence level on your workplace mascot, eh Chuck? Tony returns to his office slash workshop, once again dons his Iron Man armor, proclaiming to himself, It's now or never. I've got to find the Melter and defeat him somehow, or else watch my life's work go down the drain. H12, panel 3. There's some real dramatics here, but he says it with such conviction that we know he really believes that if he doesn't take out the Melter, he's finished. Meanwhile, the Melter... Up in a tree overlooking the factory. What is it with these bad guys and hiding around in the trees? Huh? 
He's reveling in his success, thinking now that Stark is practically out of business, panel four, he can go on to bigger and better things. His victory lap was a little premature, however. Right after assuming his win, he spots Iron Man through his little spyglass, removing the wreckage from his latest attack, and he burns a new hole in the perimeter fence surrounding the factory, vowing that this time he'll stop him permanently. Why he didn't come to this conclusion sooner is beyond me. <laughs> 60s villains, y'all. Let me tell you. Second confrontation with the Melter. The guards are made aware that the Melter is back, and they begin evacuating the premises. Happy and Pepper decide not to evacuate themselves, however. Instead, they decide to go and look for Tony to warn him of the Melter's presence. Of course, each of them fighting over who is the better messenger. With Pepper snapping that Happy couldn't find a tree in a forest. And Happy retorting that Pepper would be as much help as a water gun during the Chicago fire. Page 13, panels 2 and 3. Okay, children, settle down now. There are much more important things to worry about here than your petty little feud. As Iron Man is clearing the debris from the Melter's previous attack, the Melter appears to face him directly, stating that he won't escape this time. It had to happen sooner or later, Iron Man declares as he stares down the Melter. This is the showdown, mister. Page 13, panel 5. Or, at least, it would have been, had Pepper and Happy not arrived on the scene at that exact moment to put a spanner in the works. Well... Let's hope they at least stay out of the way. Because things immediately go south real fast. Top of page 14. As Iron Man lifts a large chunk of the damaged machinery. And the Melter starts melting it down over his head. Presumably in a bid to trap him under heavy molten metal. And make him unable to move as if he were stuck in concrete. This doesn't phase our boy however. As he conveniently has a system built into his armor that frees him from the molten material. So, the Melter just decides to attack him directly. Aluminum Man? Much to his amazement, page 15, panel 1, we see that the Melter's attack is... not working. <laughs> Mr. Horgan's heat beam is no longer effective against Iron Man's armor, even though he has the beam set to the highest intensity. In case you were as confused as I was first reading this, I'm going to go ahead and skip straight to the explanation, which isn't actually given until the last page. A bit of a misstep here in this story since it distracts the reader for the remainder of it, wondering if they somehow missed something. The explanation is as follows. Turns out, Tony has redesigned the armor using extruded aluminum, or aluminium as those of y'all across the pond would say, making it ineffective against the Melter's melting ray, which, for some reason, only works on iron. Hmm. Not sure how much sense the whole thing makes, you know, metal being metal and all, but aluminum is fairly malleable, but not sure about how meltable it is, seeing as how you can put a baking tin covered with aluminum foil in an oven and the foil doesn't melt. So... We'll just have to assume that Iron Man's redesigned armor works the same way. 
One question, though. Should we now be calling him Aluminum Man? I know the name is meant to be more metaphorical than anything, but he can't well be called Iron Man if he's made out of iron. Am I right? Well, not quite. This is an interesting, if not a little anachronistic, confirmation that at one point, Iron Man's armor was indeed made of iron. However, seeing as this hasn't been the case for decades now, and we're still calling him Iron Man, again, it's more metaphorical than anything, and since the name rolls off the tongue much better regardless, I guess we're just going to stick with it, aren't we? The bystanders always get targeted. In any case, Iron Slash Aluminium Man is impervious to the dreaded heat ray, and the melter is now in panic mode. In a last-ditch effort, he decides to melt a metal, read, iron, crane, above our hero's head in order to crush him with a heavy boulder attached to it, equipment that was most likely part of the cleanup efforts. The melter's goofy-looking mask must greatly obscure his vision, however, because that boulder isn't directly positioned above Iron Man at all. Instead, poised to crush the unsuspecting bystanders of Happy Hogan and Pepper Potts, who, much like video game streamers, don't bother to look up in order to be more aware of their surroundings and to easier solve a puzzle, so they don't actually see that they're about to be turned into pancakes. Acting quickly, Iron Man dashes forward and upward and intercepts the falling Stone of Doom just in time to prevent Happy and Pepper from coming to any serious harm. Whew. That was close. During this gambit, the Melter has taken the time to escape back into the plant, and Iron Man gives chase, while Happy remarks, Whew! Now that is one handy gent to have around, eh, Pepper? Recall before that Happy didn't seem to trust Iron Man all that much, but since he's just saved his bacon, now all of a sudden, he's a swell guy. Likewise, Pepper responds in kind. All of a sudden, Happy... That walking tin can is the handsomest male I've ever seen. Um, okay. This is fine. I think. Conclusion to the conflict. In the meantime, Iron Man catches up with the melter and corners him by remote locking the automatic fire doors on the main factory floor, using a control panel in his tool belt of convenient plot devices. However, the melter is not beaten yet and takes the time to inform our hero of such as he melts the metal-reinforced flooring beneath his feet, hoping to make him fall through the floor. This, of course, doesn't work, as the melter has forgotten that Iron Man's jet boots make him able to hover, thus keeping him above ground. So, he does what any sane, reasonable supervillain would do when he realizes he's met his match. Runs away like a coward, escaping into the sewers by melting a drain cover. The drainage current carries him away, allowing him to make a probably not-so-clean getaway. It is a sewer, after all. Eh, gross. In any case, it looks like the Melter will live to fight another day, much to Iron Man's chagrin, as he remarks that the same tricks may not work on him a second time, as he'll have gotten that much wiser after this fight and will likely be tougher to beat as a result. 
The story then concludes with Tony explaining his Aluminum Man armor gambit, as we previously discussed before, returning to his civilian identity and making his way back to the cleanup site, so Tony Stark can be seen getting things back on track, with everyone except Happy being glad to see him arrive. Because he sees how glad Pepper is to see him, so his needless jealousy rears its ugly head once again. And our story concludes expecting the reader to just accept that the situation with the Melter is done and dealt with. Except, it totally isn't. Since, you know, he got away. Since the Melter was not actually apprehended or dispatched, it stands to reason that he will return again, and he'll definitely be more dangerous than this first encounter. Marvel heroes at this time have a real problem with not finishing off their villains, or at least leaving them in a place to be apprehended and locked away where they should be, especially after having a hard time confronting them and then just barely scraping by. You know, real mediocre white guy stuff. Anybody else would be reprimanded for letting the bad guy get away, but nope, not our heroes. Not yet, anyway. Wait for it. This kind of reckless behavior will start biting them in the rear sooner rather than later. And especially for Iron Man. Gee, I wonder why. Part 2. Retcons, References, and Reflections. This first appearance of the Melter is your standard Silver Age cheesy villain stuff. So, it may surprise you that the Milter actually does stick around and return to plague our armor-clad hero many times to come. As you would rightfully expect, a villain named the Milter who has the ability to turn metal into slag is a huge impediment to a hero wearing metal armor, and he's only going to get more beefed up from here on out. Thankfully, his rather goofy-looking costume will improve over time, and he'll even show up during some very key story arcs later on. So, look forward to that. This is the segment where normally, I will take the time to detail some of his appearances in outside Marvel media. However, he doesn't really seem to be used all that often in Marvel animation, video games, or other non-comic media that I can recall at the moment. So I can't exactly give you all any real details on this front right now. However, if any of you lovely listeners can remember seeing him elsewhere, please feel free to let me know. And tell me how wrong I am. You know, in a cordial manner, of course. And if I happen to remember one before his next appearance, I'll go ahead and bring it up in that episode when we meet him again. Developing Relationships This issue, we see more of the developing relationship between Happy and Pepper, and a little bit more of how they both relate to Tony. Specifically, we see an odd sort of camaraderie between Happy and Pepper and that they always work together and are united in their desire to support Tony, yet individually appear to not like each other all that much at all. For some reason, Happy seems to be convinced that Pepper is crazy about him, even though all signs point to the opposite being the case. He also shows a rather unwarranted jealousy when she shows affection to other men besides him, namely Tony and Iron Man, which is hilarious when neither of them know that they are the same person. Gents, let this be an example. 
when women tell you their feelings the first time, please believe them. Pepper at this point also still doesn't have a lot of development yet outside of she doesn't like Happy that much and she likes Tony maybe a little bit too much. And this issue adds an extra little ingredient to the mix in that she's also starting to have feelings for Iron Man. Who, again, is Tony also. <laughs> so yeah, that's not going to get confusing at all. Regardless, she and Happy do kind of have a bit of a joint character arc starting here, beginning with their bit of rivalry with one another. The sequence where they both agree that they will follow their boss to the ends of the earth and almost get hurt trying to aid in the Milder situation is only the start of said arc, as the two begin to develop into more fully formed individuals in the greater scheme of the story. Specialized Armor Designs As we've seen so far and will continue to see, Tony is always constantly improving himself and his armor designs as he moves forward and he will continue to upgrade his armor or adjust it for specified situations when the need arises so as not to be defeated by the same methods twice. In this issue, we see him create a specially designed iteration of his standard armor that is immune to the capabilities of the Milter's heat ray. This is the first time we see Tony create a specialized armor to deal with a specific problem, and it won't be the last. As we go forward, especially once we finally reach the second decade of Showhead stories, we'll see him create more specialized armors that have unique designs and specific functions and capabilities for various tasks, such as stealth missions, and exploration of hostile terrain, such as underwater, and even outer space. We're still quite a ways from those, but look forward to seeing how he continues to adjust his armor, even in small ways, to deal with all the myriad kinds of problems he'll face as his armored alter ego. Thank you all very much for joining me for this breakdown of the first appearance of the Melter. In our next episode, we're going back to our multi-issue format, as we are covering the two stories told in Tales of Suspense number 48 and 49 as we look at the first major, complete overhaul and total redesign of Iron Man's armor. Folks, this is the moment you've all been waiting for. We will finally see him in his iconic red and gold colors for the very first time. And after all of that excitement, if you're still feeling like you need just a bit more iron in your diet, stick around for a special bonus. Our very first point one episode as we backtrack just a little bit and cover the first few adventures of Iron Man as a founding member of a certain brand new super team that has just recently hit the scene. Hope to see y'all there. In the meantime, please follow the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And tell your family, friends, or whoever you think may be interested. Remember... Sharing is caring. As always, the intro and outro theme is Breakdown by Kevin McLeod. Until then, my name is Marissa, and you've been listening to The Shining Armor Podcast, the show hosted by a comic book newbie who likes Marvel comics and just wants to talk about Iron Man. Stay safe and be good, y'all. <laughs> <laughs>